you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee. Time to become an American hero. <laughs> saucers were real. What if Hitler had a saucer and planned an attack on New York? What if America developed a radar invisible flying saucer and the CIA used alien invaders as a cover for top-secret military experiments? For 50 years the world has been flying saucer crazy. We've seen so many that more people now believe in aliens than in God. There were flying saucers everywhere. Just imagination, but I saw them just The truth is rather more complex. Flying saucers do exist, but they don't come from outer space. They come from Earth and the darkest recesses of military research. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 102 of the Loon Gumman Podcast. This is your boy, Rob Clark. With you along for the ride today, and I got a great show. I got a return guest come back on the show. Richard Gilbride joins me again, and uh, we're going to get into today uh, a little bit about Nazi UFOs, Operation Paperclip, Fred Crispin, Thomas Beckham. But I started off the conversation speaking to the man himself about Buell Frazier. Now, there's been some feedback from my Buell Frazier episode, so. I wanted to ha- I wanted to ask Richard anyway because he's the guy that actually transcribed the tapes from the National Archive from the HSCA interviews of all these depository workers. So, who better to ask than the man himself who brought us these important interviews in print and and worked hard transcribing them and gave us the audio. And I wanted to get his take on the the newest Roy Lewis allegations and you know, just what it means in his in his scope of things. It takes about 20 minutes or so to clear up Frazier, and then we, I promise, uh, to stick around, and we will get right into, uh, you know, the real-life X-Files type stuff. And it, it, it's, it's crazy because, you know, of course, the X-Files got rebooted this year. 
And I used to watch it all the time back in the 90s when it was on television. And I had downloaded the first two episodes of the X-Files and didn't actually get to watch them until Sunday night. I talked to Richard on Saturday. (laughs) And for those of you out there who have watched the new season of the X-Files, it's... (laughs) It's eerily similar to what me and Richard were talking about on, on Saturday day. So, hence the name for this program, The Real Life X-Files. And I hope you enjoy the show. I, I Just bear with us, because, you know, we're not talking about little green men and from outer space. And, you know, I know when we're talking about the Kennedy assassination, you know, when you start mentioning UFOs and Marilyn Monroe and the Nazis, you know, people's eyes start glazing over and they just shut it out. But... It's it's important to establish this whole UFO story and cover-up to really illustrate who exactly and what level of an operative that Fred Chrisman actually was. Okay? And, and in order to do that, we need to explore the topic of UFOs and try to figure out exactly what they were doing. So without further ado, uh, people, please enjoy... Richard Gilbride, oh, and by the way, um, this episode was made possible from donations by you guys, so keep them coming, I appreciate it, and I bought some Skype Skype credit so I could talk to Richard, you know, he doesn't have computer access, so I used Skype to record our conversation uh, and called his cell phone, and he sounds great, and I sound like doo-doo, so I think I need a new microphone, but it's not that bad, um, but please do enjoy the show and uh, head over to TLGpodcast.com to donate and to check out all the links for this show, all the pictures for this show. And uh, I, without further ado, I bring to you the author of Matrix for Assassination and JFK Inside Job, Mr. Richard Gilbride. Did you get a chance to listen to uh, that Roy Lewis audio? I did not listen to it, but I looked into the uh, information that... Um you know, I'm inclined not to agree with it. I think he was probably kind of hearsay. He didn't know him all that well. He said, uh, um, I looked up his FBI report, and, uh, well, he says he was acquainted. Because he was another oil filler, but they, you know, a lot of guys did not know him, Lee Harvey Oswald, all that well. Because he just was kept to himself and was pretty quiet, basically. And only the guys who had... Um, um, he'd interact with on a regular basis. He'd be like James Jarman, the uh, checker, right. or or um, Wesley Fraser, or a Billy Lovelady. I mean, otherwise he he was basically all by himself, you know, just would keep to himself and read the, the yesterday's newspaper, you know, and just get through the workday. But he was very good at his um, job. And uh, the other woman I looked up, uh, Mary Hollies, because she actually lived down near the Texas. Theater, and so her. And she took the bus supposedly, and and it was swinging by on its route past his rooming house. And uh, but See, I've never come across said, anything uh, about you know anybody well, riding the bus with him to work. Yeah, you think you would, but you know if you kind of think about it, like I had an experience with um uh, in my twenties. I took a had to uh, live in Boston a little bit, and I had to um take a bus for a while and I just, just you basically get on and I would basically stare out the window or daydream I just wouldn't pay much attention so I don't think it's really the uh, 
you know, potential source that, and someone would tap into to try and uh, figure out if they saw this guy, but they did not, which, you know, this is unfortunate because they, they could have, um, you know, asked a whole bunch of people as to the comings and goings, but they decided not to. So they did not explore that avenue. But with him having the bus stop right across the street from his rooming house, and him not getting along with um, his wife, Marina, but loving his baby daughters. And then Rachel had just been born on, like, October 16th. So that kind of gave him the, uh, you know, the the motive to uh, want to be out there, at least for the weekends, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, they wouldn't be fighting with each other, him and Marina. But, you know, there was just that one time uh, he missed out. I guess he was... Um, they thought they had seen him shooting at a, uh, a sports drone rifle range or something. Or yeah, him and Frazier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there was one weekend he missed, but otherwise he basically was out there. And the thing was, you know, Wesley was um, living with his sister right down the street from the Paynes house. And, um, you know, he said he just said no problem. I think what Wesley is telling a straight story, but the... the um, the question mark with what I have with him was the uh, uh, he was um, uh, filmed uh, I think early in 1964 or no he's filmed the next day uh, standing outside his car and then telling the story about the curtain rods and that's when the um, voice stress analyzer this guy from the CIA developed said that he was lying about that particular um, incident right. So I think that that correlates with um, the story with Eddie Shields about um, him uh, supposedly seeing uh, Fraser park down at the warehouse and uh, someone yelling out, hey, where's your ride? You know, he's saying, Fraser's saying, no, I dropped him off at the building. Right. I mean, so that would be the whole different spin on the official story, which was he followed him. You know, Oswald carried a package from his car. You know, he followed like 50 feet behind him or whatever. It's yeah. Just, uh, what I think is the uh, you know the uh, make believe on Fraser's part, but only only Wesley Fraser can give that to us because um you know um, unless he does or until he does and he, he and he uh, it's not that uh you know I don't think he's he, I think he's a good person fundamentally a good person right but I think he got Shanghai into doing stuff that just went way beyond what he expected and he um you know part of it was just um kind of you know uh. Um, being a uh, well, he was probably scared to death too. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely scared to death. Well, plus with his um, you know, having kids and stuff. But he had gone to the army after um, leaving the book depository. He did like two stints in the army. Yeah. I think the threat of Vietnam always hung over him, and uh, I think a threat, you know, of um, whatever it be, whatever damage it can do. You know, because he, you know, uh, found a girl and had children and stuff, and so he got little kids and uh, got his own all family besides his own self that um, is always under the, uh, you know, the sword of Damocles is always threatening. If if he ever um, tells the truth, you know, it's it's just going to be uh, murder for his, his family and. Uh, I think, you know, that, you know, when he came out, it's something I thought about after our last conversation, because you had mentioned he had come out with a story that um, Oswald had gone out the back dock, and he had volunteered this, so like, about eight years ago in some interview. Yeah. 
And the thing was, it, it's not credible because there's so much evidence that Oslo came out the front. Exactly. So he's the, he, what what he is is following all the um, uh, researchers and stories or whatever, and just trying to find the holes in that. If he can, um, uh, you know, give a, like a fake um, witness sighting that Oswald actually went out the back door, you know, that will give him like added credibility that right. he's, you know, he's, you know, reporting something no one else did. But it's just, uh, it's make believe. Unfortunately, I guess he spoke at Lancer um, last year, or mm-hmm. maybe the year before, in one of those. And so um, he's starting to come out of the woodwork, and he's like 67 years old. So, and uh, um, I, I don't know how you're going to get him in a uh, situation where um, uh, he feels like he's um, uh, compelled to uh, tell tell the truth, or else you know there's going to be a consequence. Well, he's writing a book, you know, so got, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But someone's got to drill him about, give the hard questions. I mean, my whole uh, um, take on him, I, you know, I could be greatly mistaken, but I'm taking, I'm just trying to present a case that there's a lot there that needs to be, um, you know, determined on his part. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if he was there, if he was, um, if he had shut off the power to the elevators well, once the police started searching the building, I mean, that's, that's a, pretty incriminating. That kind of means that you knew beforehand you were going to do that. You knew beforehand that Kenny was going to get shot at. Yeah. I mean, so what's the reason for this? Mm-hmm. Who set you up for this? And he could say so much more. And the thing was, and, um, I tried to, uh, at the end of my, my own little essay there, just tried to uh, show that he really had insight into how it was such a military-run operation. I mean, he's a great witness for that. He's, he's just a little, you know, pawn in the whole scheme of things, but if the military were, were running that show, I mean, he really had the, uh, uh, you know, perception to, um, you know, describe that, you know, he was a, a great witness to that, you know, he said it was a military uh, operation, a military thing, you know, and I think people yeah. would look into that, that's what, yeah. it's basically what he said, so. Well, his HSCA, um interview, I think it was from tape three, he was talking to Moriarty, and I think, it, it, if, if I'm remembering correctly, he says something like, um, you know, I am not, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, I knew that he hid the rifle, and then he said he was standing on the steps, and he thought to himself, oh my God, you know, I just know I don't want to be pulled into this, or something to that yeah, effect. Yeah, exactly. He said that in the... Uh, um HSS, HSCA interview, but his story for the um, Warren Commission was he didn't know anything about a rifle. Right. You know, so there's two different uh, stories there. So yeah, I mean. And I mean, I think I think you, uh, did did you transcribe that or? Did, yeah, I did. I had I had to um, uh, get the free trial of some uh, professional audio software. Right. Uh, Five hundred dollars software. I spent like I had it for one month, and I got through as much as I, that scratchy recordings as I could. You know, I'd do like about three minutes a day, and I had some time off in the winter to do that. But you know, it was almost a month's work uh, to um, even get uh, like 40 pages worth. And the thing was, it was it was so uh, jumbled. It was really really difficult to uh, 
determine what, what words were. I made like two different drafts and just kept going over and over things until it made sense. And uh, yeah. Um, well, that one little piece of what Frazier said, he, he, I think it, you know, it possibly could have been instead of I knew he hid the rifle. It could have been I knew he had the rifle. You understand what I'm saying? Um, like it could. Yes, yes, it can easily be misinterpreted. And plus, they were supposedly going to uh, prepare a transcript of that for the public. You know, there's, you know, what part of the uh, Moriarty was going to hand it to a secretary or whatever, and she was going to make up a transcript, and that should be publicly available. But it's not. It's gone. You know, because you know we should be able to read a document like you know. Fourth full because it was a four-hour recording, so we yeah. should have a transcript of that available. But it's all um, hidden away, you know. I mean, the and there's way. other two tapes you you couldn't even get through them. They were just too badly damaged. Yeah, yeah, it's two hours worth. Um, you know, it's just a real low, low tape. It's it's almost comparable to an old cassette tape that maybe if your sister had in the attic like 25 years and you finally found it again you know it never been touched it's like some old Ozzy Osbourne tape or something and yeah. it would uh, you know it would just sound like hell and uh yeah it's a shame you know so yeah it was a shame because they physically deteriorate eventually over time and uh I think I had been probably the first person in, in 15 years to even attempt to listen to it because all those tapes amazingly enough we're all in like a, a couple of shoeboxes in the archives. This is a whole ream of uh, New Orleans stuff and on and on that I just did not have the time for. And uh, I looked through um, depository employee stuff and I grabbed as much as I could. And, uh, you know, finally at the end of that, when I, I saw that I had half a day left, I, I, um, uh, I found a Marina Oswald tape from her an interview on, uh, I think it was this, uh, November 23rd, and it looked like one of these beautiful new Memorex tapes. I said, great, this is good quality tape, but almost brand new. But it turned out it was like, um, it would speed up and slow down and just go, you know, just uh, oh. totally out of whack. And, and I don't know whether someone was um, trying to play with my head with the controls, because I went to about six different uh, tape stations, to, you know, to try and make sense of this particular um, tape. Right. And uh, you know, as I mentioned, like a year later, the um, the director of that audio visual place got uh, arrested for taking stuff home. Right. So I mean, uh, I I don't know. Potentially, they could be monkeying, you know, with the equipment while someone's listening to it. I don't know. I but you know, it wouldn't surprise me because um, it's still it's funny. It's the uh, it's it's such it's like this whole um, national security uh, mental block that people have that because we're banging on the doors of the truth and they just they still can't uh, hack it. They really can't. I mean, it's, I don't know what to say there. Yeah. It's just, um, well, you managed to get a lot of that audio up up on the uh, the old ROKC site too uh, from a lot of these HSCA interviews and you know I listened to or tried to listen to a few of them like Billy Lovelady and it's 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 a task, I will tell you that. You know, it's it's uh, it's very hard to do or make it. You know, try to make out yeah, exactly what they're saying. 
you have to be a devotee and you have to listen so carefully and double check your own stuff. And um, um, some of the there uh, there were audios that were just not good enough quality to even um, publish. There was a uh, you know Amy Stewens, um was one, and then there was another Patrick Dean. Oh, really? Which I missed out on. Which never, never got published. He was the uh, sergeant in, in the basement when I was Argo got um, killed. And, uh, you know, there was some things. It was just, um, the problem was that, that they were talking too close to the microphone, basically, and it really distorts the sound quality. And it's, it's a little bit irritating to have to listen to it. But Fraser, uh, I'm serious, it was like, uh, you know, you're listening in a raging snowstorm and it was a crackly fire and, it was so, so hard to uh, make out the words, you know, just a minor little rumble in the background. But um, yeah. I, was, I was really, I double-checked that. Once I made the final transcript, I double-checked it against the whole scratch and tuned my ear into what the tape was on and played them both together. And I know that the, uh, you know, final transcript I made is like 98% accurate. I just, I know it in my heart. So, um no, that's all we got. That's yeah. all we got. Well, hopefully, that, hopefully that clears up some things for some people because, you know, I did a show, you know, about Frazier and a lot of these HSCA interviews and about Roy Lewis, what he just said. And, um, you know, it just it, it just seemed odd to me, you know, that, that all these guys would, would have them, you know, arriving together. And, you know, Roy Lewis had playing the day, you know, Monday through Friday, every day, you know, and it was like, Wow. And, you know, it just matches, kind of matches. You know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. You know, it's not written in stone, but it it, it is interesting um, to think about that possibility. You know, if you... Well, a, if a he, case could be made, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, a case could be made. Um, but, you know, it's just... Um, you know, this is one of the problems with this case. It's just... Um, this is so ambiguous. It's just, uh, you know, a nightmare to, to get a... Uh, a firm bead, you know, on what, uh, where, you know, the evidence, quote unquote, leads you to, because it's just, um, you know, people have been knocking their heads for this for 52 years now. It's just, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you know, like in my case, I mean, I have specialized in the depository, and I just have to eventually take, you know, take one, uh, one take on it. This is my, uh, well, my conclusion, and I've made tons of mistakes over the years, but slowly built up my case that the elevator was used for the escape, and I just, um, well, I have to listen to that. And that that's what I would present to a, um, a jury or whatever and see what they decide. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have, um, I've called the, uh, you know, the former DA down in Dallas, and I just, he wouldn't, uh, you know, just, uh, really wouldn't respond. So I talked to yeah. his secretary, and he would make himself unavailable because people are still too scared to um, touch this thing. And I think it, and the problem is it has to be like a political will, like in local Dallas politics, to try and make this, um, uh, you know, in actuality, the whole of grand jury investigation. Because without a favorable political climate, like after the um, Oliver Stone movie, for example, you had people pounding on the doors of Congress, you know, and this is crazy. But, but now it's just, um, everybody just, they want to go back to sleep. They just don't want to know the, um, you know, that there was, 
you know, and an unspeakable evil actually that was was carried out by this country, which murdered its you know elected leader. And, yeah, uh, I don't know, but so you know the kind of the uh, yeah diehards or whatever, whatever we want, whatever you want to call it, they just have to carry the torch That's and right. see what happens because. Maybe, uh, maybe something will work out. You never know because, um, you know, probably the best shot actually is, is getting a, uh, right now, getting a, um, clear photo of that prayer man. Because if we can get that and get that on the news, say, that would really, um, people would really turn their heads. If they saw a picture of Oswald there in the doorway, you know, when the shooting was going on, it's just like, oh. It's like he's like the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. Because if you don't, yeah. if Oswald didn't do this thing, you'll suddenly get the whole dike burst, and you know you, you just won't have any answer. But you would, with the exception of it was it was a uh, national security state killing. You know. Yeah. It wasn't Oswald? It was the only answer you, you can come up with. It was the national security state. Horrendous. So. Yeah. You know, I think we need that something similar. That's that's my you know two cents on that. So yeah. All right. Well, let's park let's park Fraser on the shelf for a while till we till we have some more information to go on. And uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today is Beckham and Chrisman. Now these are two interesting Absolutely. characters. You know, they 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 kind of first pop up. In the, in the narrative, uh, in the in, in the Garrison investigation, and we really don't get much from them um, in the course of the grand jury testimony. Um, you know, a whole lot of nebulous speak and denials, and you know, things of this nature. But when it comes time to the HSCA, and by this time Crispin's dead, and you know, a bunch of other people are dead. And they give old Tommy Beckham uh, immunity for his testimony. We suddenly get a different version of events and a different story, which I think is very interesting. And I first came across it, you know, in your files there from the HSCA and his interview there. So, so Richard, let, let's let's get into Beckham and Chrisman and and how they kind of factor into the assassination. Um. If you want to, we kind of want to uh, um, lay some background on the uh, UFO angle with uh, Fred sure. Christmas, especially. Because he's um, notorious for the Maury Island incident. So, I mean, there's going to be about 20 minutes of background information anyway on uh, UFOs in general. Because, um, you know, a Christmas is just totally uh, tied into that from a, um, like a deep cover operative. Yeah, well, lay it out for us because I mean, this is you know, this is important when it when when you're starting to look at government operatives and and what exactly the UFO movement was 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 you know set up, designed for, and could possibly have been there to explain um, or divert attention from. And it's in, it's important about the time this first pops up. So, so yeah, go ahead, Richard, and lay the groundwork for us. And I guess we, yeah, Maury Island would be a great place to start, or uh, or Roswell, whatever you want to do. Um. Well, Maury Island supposedly happened before Roswell, right? Well, 
I think so. Yeah. Technically. Um. Well, he was. Last war was basically uh, July fourth, nineteen forty-seven. July third and fourth, or third or fourth, uh, in there, and. Um, it was about three weeks after that that Chrisman uh, got in touch with this guy, Kenneth Arnold. Now, he had had the uh, sighting about 10 days before Roswell that kind of started the whole flying saucer um, uh, hysteria. Because he was, uh, Kenneth Arnold was like a real um, uh, solid all-American guy. He was, he was uh um, a respected businessman. He sold fire extinguishers. He was a um, member of the Idaho Search and Rescue um, Division, whatever. And he he logged between 40 and 100 hours um, flying every single month. So he had a lot of contacts, and he was just kind of an all-American kind of guy and well-respected person. So when he he was up uh, flying up by Mount Rainier at the end of uh, June would be. 1947, and he saw about nine, uh, he told reporters that they they, um, uh, they look like saucers when you skip them on water, and that's when the whole term flying saucer came into the uh, popular uh, lexicon, and, um, and so uh, Roswell was about 10 days after that, and then about Three weeks after that, at near the end of July, Chrisman gets in touch with Kenneth Arnold, and uh, he tells him a story that he's uh, he was out on Puget Sound up in, in near Seattle, uh, Tacoma, with this harbor master named Harold Dahl, and that uh, they were buzzed by a UFO, a whole bunch of UFOs, but one of them looked like it was in trouble, and started spitting out uh, like silvery. Uh, um, uh, just hunks of like uh, you know refuse like slag, and uh, so he collected some of this in a shoebox and he sold it to Kenneth Arnold. And uh, you know Arnold says, "Well, hey, I know a couple um, Air Force intelligence guys." You know, he gets in touch with them and they fly up from Hamilton, California, and they look at it and they realize right off the bat that they see like a square-headed headed rivet inside there, among other stuff. That this is just cheap aluminum refuse, you know, and and then it's a little bit disgusted and Christman admits that oh well, you know, it was a hoax, you know. And um but unfortunately when the investigators went back home the next day, their plane uh crashed right after takeoff and um so the hoax lives on. Uh mostly through uh a story in the in the uh, kind of this um well, National Enquirer type uh, tabloid that called, was called Amazing Stories, a published out of Chicago or something. But, you know, suddenly the Mari, Mari Island incident, it was a hoax, it was made a hoax, but it became an incident now. And so people wonder, you know, what was going on with this. So the thing with Chrisman, he's, uh, at the time of that, he was 27 years old. He observed in the, uh, Office of Strategic Services, the, the intelligence um, unit in, during World War II, and he had participated in uh, Operation Paperclip to help evacuate Nazi scientists from Germany to America. And um, it may have had contact with Clay Shaw at this time. I just want to throw that in there. 
Well, I think, I don't know if it's documented, I think he probably did have contact with Quasar during the war, as well, they became friends, and the uh, knew each other anyways, and uh, so I think the reason was to try and, um, uh, to make the, to, uh, get the public thinking that um, the saucers that Kenneth Arnold had seen were extraterrestrial. I think, uh, in actuality, they were probably uh, constructed by the Nazis. The, there was a um, huge uh, um, Nazi saucer program that's well documented. Um, they had, uh, well, we have, there are numerous, numerous, dozens and dozens of photographs. I have one in my book of 138 but um, Hanabu saucer has those spherical charge condensers on the bottom. It's, uh, if you get a real good copy of this picture, it's like you can see the Maltese cross on it. And it's about 50 feet high, about 140 feet across. And I'm looking at uh, the six little people in a shack right beside it. You know, it's just uh, this gigantic machinery. And, uh, and, they were doing this. They were. Um, they had. They had a little um, uh, aerospace and weapons development center on a peninsula out in, extending into the Baltic Sea. You know, like 2,000 scientists housed there for like six years, from 1937 to about 1943. They pinned them on the base, and that's where all their the V1 and V2 um, missiles were developed. Uh, which you know, they they used they launched the bombing attacks on London and whatnot and uh, so it's 2,000 scientists for six years um, developing God knows what and um, uh, it it got leveled it got targeted specifically by the Allies and and but after that the Germans just went underground uh, they had huge huge um, Underground manufacturing uh, complexes in uh, in Bavaria and in southern Poland, and uh, also on the border and in Czechoslovakia, and on the border between Poland and and Germany, and it's just uh, massive, uh, uh, two three miles dug into these mountains, where they would just manufacture more V ones and V twos, and had giant wind tunnel uh, testing, and on and on and on. Brilliant engineering complexes, and there was even a report that came out after the war, a Swedish newspaper. Uh, it uh, had a story of uh, one of um, Braun uh, was personally oversaw the development of a 20-foot flying saucer, and mm-hmm. he was also researching atomic power as a means to reduce fuel consumption. So. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be automatically assumed that just because we got the A-bomb that Germans had, you know, were not looking into uranium. They were. It was a uh, uranium machine that was uh, destroyed at uh, Camp Mecklenburg as the uh, Allies were approaching. And so um, uh, there's a lot we don't know. And um, there's... Uh, There's one YouTube that anyone who's um, curious about uh, the state of the art of the Nazi saucer program, it's called 
If you Google, Google up a German UFO base in Brazil, you see about five minute YouTube, we see a squadron of about seven or eight saucers, and they're all uh, coming down, and they're starting to, they're charging up at these uh, gantry uh, type pl kind of platforms. And so they have little spherical charge condensers on the bottom. And uh, there, there's also, there's, there's like an army helicopter approaching them from uh, Argentina or wherever, somewhere in Brazil. And uh, they, um, they, the saucers turn invisible while this thing is approaching it. So they have cooking abilities. So you, you really have to wonder, uh, uh, you know, it's funny, I saw a, uh, a news blurb on Fox News yesterday with releasing, uh, CIA's releasing uh, all kinds of UFO footage from the 40s and 50s, you know, Great Revelation. Yeah. And, uh, all these things, the, the old photos, they look like the old tin pot uh, Nazi uh, flying saucers, you know, they don't look like streamlined uh, things that you might see today. You know, they kind of yeah. look like the old uh, Edsel's package of the flying saucers. And this is the weird thing. It's like when the uh, first saucers got uh, reported in the late 40s, you know, all the, a lot of them would match the um, photos or accounts of um, Nazi constructed um, machines, you know. So that's a little bit weird. And, um, Yeah, just to, just to clear it up, Richard, real quick, I mean, what, what we're talking about here, folks, we're not talking about little green men from outer space and UFOs. We're talking about Nazi technology. You know, we're talking about intelligence, um, intelligence groups and the fight for this technology and, and in the years since enhancing such technology to God knows what, it, you know, it's capable of today, but... You know the Nazis were way ahead of their time when it when it came to aero aerospace and and rockets and flying ships and it's not out of the realm, out of the realm of possibility that they would have had developed some kind of technology you know salt flying saucer type technology you know that could you know do these feats defy gravity you know become invisible things like this would have been considered very very uh important for our intelligence people to get their hands on and conceal from the public uh you know hence we get the uh you know the ufo alien story but i'm sorry richard um well the other thing that it was uh way back in 1952 there was a very famous uh flyover over the um uh, government complex in Washington in July 1952 was even photographed in Life magazine because they, they had 11 of them that were in like a V formation flying right over the Capitol building and a whole lot more were uh, picked up on military radar and Seamus um, uh, Coogan had, had mentioned this in uh, the nice article he wrote but um, uh, was in, they, the, apparently at the time that the Navy had a guided missile that they would keep it on the wraps and they had um, jet interceptors removed from Andrews Air Force Base, it says here, to uh, Newcastle and Dover, 90 miles away, during the same time frame as these sightings. So that's kind of weird because um, what I would think instead is that uh, you really can't get a cruise missile to a flying formation, at least not in 1952. They weren't that far developed. You know, they're basically 
um, working off of the Nazi V1. Yeah, they were basically uh, rockets on steroids, yeah. Yeah, they launched those things from sleds, you know, uh, a track on a sled, you know, with that thing up into the air. So I think if you get some uh, things that can fly in formation like this, I think you're really looking at is probably some uh, squadron of these Nazi UFOs. And what's interesting, if jet interceptors were removed from Andrews Air Force Base at the time to kind of give these uh, this the squadron uh, window to be seen. I mean, yeah, you have to have collusion. There's people in cahoots with the people running the Nazi UFOs that that know that um, you know we want to get our jet interceptors out of the way. So I mean, this is. Um, it uh, just conjures up a whole idea that there might be a, uh, a secondary space program, a deep black secret space program going on. I mean, even, uh, let me quote you here, probably Truman was not in the loop because he had a, ordered a shoot-down order. And uh, I can uh, read that one sentence right here. It's, um Okay, yeah, this is his chief of staff, uh, General Omar Bradley, uh, following the instructions of the president, the Defense Department gives orders to shoot down all UFOs which refuse to land upon being told to do so. It's not that they're going to, but I mean, if you picture uh, the little green men flying those things, they're not going to do anything, but, you know, it, it's, it's um, at least on the face of it, the, even the chief of staff was not being told what's going on as far as what what are these things are flying all the capital. And so that kind of stunt has never been repeated. But I mean you have uh, you know, JFK was I think he was in the house in fifty two, but he was on his way to becoming a senator. And uh, if you recall or you know about the fifties, it was a time of um B science fiction movies and uh, a great deal of public interest in the uh UFO Phenomena, you know, it should be kind oh, of yeah. paranoia. And uh, one thing about, um, well, Kenny, uh, his own personal interaction with um, what UFOs may have been or whatever, because if he's not going to get it straight from the people who are running the thing, I mean, he may have um, got it from one of his advisors, and one guy was uh, Oscar Lundahl who was the uh, head of the National Photo Interpretation Center. And um, he was the guy who had um, briefed everybody on when the U2s made their overflights of Cuba. And he would just interpret all the whole tiny little um, missiles, uh, launch sites and uh, trucks and uh, garages and what have you on the photo, you know, those big briefing boards that they used in the cabin room when the Cuban missile crisis was going on. So he was, uh, he's one of the, the world's most foremost authorities on UFOs because apparently 80% of his uh, massive home library was all about UFOs. And uh, they, it's recorded that JFK and Arthur Lundahl had an off-the-record meeting on September 7th, 1962. And it's not recorded what they talked about. But as it works out, on September 11th, uh, JFK went down to um, Alabama, that, to the Redstone Arsenal down in Huntsville, and uh, he met with Werner von Braun, who was running the NASA program at the time. And uh, 
the two of them got into an argument about what's the best man-needs propulsion to get to the moon. Because uh, Von Braun was all uh, wrapped up in the uh, satin, uh, satin fly cluster. The JFK looked at a test firing on a satin booster there. But I think JFK might have had other ideas that it wasn't, uh, you know, the only method. So, um, and of course, the next day it was um, where he went to JFK. President went to Wright Stadium and, you know, boldly proposed to send the man to the moon before the decade was through. So, uh, you know, you have to, I think he, you have to wonder um, what, what President Kennedy actually knew as compared to what was officially put out. Um, well, I'd probably say not not too much. I think if the CIA would have considered it, a, you know, above his pay grade, so to speak. But you know, there is, we do have documents, you know, from actually from November of 1963, where he's, you know, requesting from the CIA uh, information on flying saucers. You know, when we're talking a week or two before his assassination. Well, this here, um, that's one of the Timothy Cooper uh, documents. It's pretty well debunked. Uh, from Seamus's article, I mean that he had concocted uh, that thing himself. Uh, he had, for whatever reason. Oh really? Shit. He, um, you know, he fabricated that particular document because it was November 12th. He had put out a um, uh, national security action memorandum number 271, to which went to the, the head of NASA, who was James Webb. And he asked for um, uh, specified cooperation in the lunar landing programs with the Soviet Union, and all you know, substantive p- proposals is what his his term was for cooperation right. with the USSR on outer space matters. So when you, uh, this document was fabricated, that would included Engels Engelson's um, signature, is how he got that. I'm not quite sure. But um, he admitted that it was a hoax. Uh, he admitted it in uh, 2009 to a fellow named Robert Hastings. And um, you know, it was probably part of this grand dis- disinformation project that he was working on with uh, Richard Doty, who was an Air Force Officer Special Investigations uh, disinformation specialist. Now you're talking about so, like the, the all those majestic papers and all that stuff that Yes, absolutely, okay. absolutely. You know, not to get too long winded about that, but they've been pretty thoroughly debunked. Right. And yeah. um you know, it's basically like a psyops kind of thing where um you'd put out this myth that there was like a twelve person uh majestic council or whatever that would review UFO policy and decide, you know, that they were a level above the president and this and that. Right. But um, the thing was, there's always a grain of truth in there. Though. You know, it's like um, there's some kind of something in there that's true that they're trying to tell us. What was the reason for the story is one thing I've wondered, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, Timothy Cooper has not come forward since he was exposed. And um, so well, one thing one thing I always well, thought, Richard, was like, um, you know, when it, when it comes to this, to this whole UFO story, you know, in, in my mind, I always thought that, you know, it was that this, this it kind of morphed into something that they just went with. 
um, because of course they don't want the public to know about the technology if it exists. You know, they don't want to know that they have they brought all these you know Nazi scientists over here to continue working on some of this stuff. They don't want people to know what they're doing in Area 51 as far as you know possibly progressing this technology. And if these things are caught in the sky, you know what better what better way to say you know to cover it up and say oh they must be aliens it's it's just UFOs you know th- you know it's this and that and then you know people crazy you know oh, <laughs> conspiracy people get crazy Absolutely. with it you know and uh, you know they yeah. look at as kooks and and it's dismissed and you know largely to the to the world you know we have this U- supposed UFO phenomenon you know all over the world there's been hundreds of thousands of sightings all over the world you know for there's been like 25 years. million well really <laughs> okay that, we got yeah. and you know people are so seeing I mean, something we know what's supposed to be flying in the air and what's not supposed to be flying in the air and you know you can put everything in, in the latter category into unidentified flying objects and what are we what are people actually seeing it's hard to tell but you know we have a lot of video from this stuff you know we see what we see and I, I'll admit that I'm intrigued and you know I, I think this whole UFO thing and, and Fred Christman is important for for actually starting this you know way 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 back and planting the seed in people's minds that these UFOs are alien phenomena and not terrestrial phenomena you know absolutely you know it's it's funny that the um, uh, notorious um, hacker, a uh, British computer hacker, um, named Gary McKinnon, it was about 15 years ago, he was like looking over the, the NASA website and he found something like, he found like spreadsheets for 25 non-terrestrial officers, it was called. You know, he had to, he still, he, he was um, threatened with prosecution and this and that and the other. Yeah. But, Non-terrestrial officers, and plus they had like eight or ten uh, spaceships that they were operating. And uh, you know, so what's the story there? You know, it's just um, I, I'll tell you quickly offhand what my own personal conclusions are. That I think there is kind of some secret space program going on. Yeah, as its own agenda, and and there has to be not like there's an MJ-12, but it's, it has to be. Four or five or six people that, um, like the the chairman of Joint Chiefs, the head of the CIA, the head of um, Wright Patterson, the head of Vandenberg uh, Air Force Base out in California, which has its own launch pad. Um, you know, some some other people, head of like Area 51 or whatever. I think they all have to kind of uh, confer with each other, get together sometimes just to see, because this is partially um, partially uh, human-driven craft, and part of it, I think, is extraterrestrials as well. That's my own belief. I mean, I've I've had four um, close encounters, I'll say, uh, over the course of my life, and um, I met. Uh, I went to the Roswell Museum once, and I met one of the guys that um, he'd been a young uh, mortuary assistant. Uh, at the time, and he was asked to provide um, four uh, hermetically sealed coffins uh, to the crash site. And um, you know, he had had a friend who was a nurse as well had uh, done an autopsy of one of these um, alien bodies, and uh, she had told him about 
the horrible smell that they had. It was like some kind of pungent ammonia or whatever. And uh, so this guy said this right to my face, and I just don't uh, have any reason not to believe him. You know, he didn't seem like a, uh, you know, a uh, deluded individual or whatever, you know, to me or Charlton. Yeah. You know, he seemed like he was telling me a straight story. And so I, you know, I have a belief in, uh, uh, like, alien beings or whatever, but I don't... Um, uh, I don't spend a lot of time anymore. Um, I'm not that curious about it anymore. You know, I don't really care. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Um, but they're not—they're not messing with us, a, you know. They're, I mean, they're, if they are visiting us, they're just kind of keeping their distance and watching. It's not like they're landing anywhere, and you know, I mean, they might be abducting people and and conducting tests and putting them back. I, I don't—I don't know, but. You know, for the most part, they seem pretty hands-off if they are visiting, um, for the most part. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I think they're kind of demonic entities, and I think they are, um, like, uh, messing with us. I think they are harvesting okay. people, and, um, uh, you know, the, the, I don't know, there's just a, a very dark reason why they're here. I would not, you know, I would not trust as far as I could throw them. I don't, I don't want, it's like, what's the expression, E.T. phone home? My my own take is E.T. go home. You know? <laughs> I want, I'm I willing you. to kill them. I, I think um, I, I, I have zero fear of those things. I, I would, uh, you know, I, I'd go after them in a, less than a heartbeat. And I think lightning, lightning takes down their um, saucers and also would manufacture ball lightning can wipe them out no matter what they get. If you can uh, generate a lot of ball lightning, which you can succeed in doing that, if you really carefully look at the patents of uh, Nikola Tesla, and uh, you can generate 600 volt uh, ball lightning to direct it right at them, and then you'll have no fear. As long as you have, I mean, and and the uh, um, a book of Matthew, okay, and you know I'm a I'm a devout Christian, but I um, it describes them as their name is Legion, you know. Mm-hmm. And I look at those things as just a whole legion of uh, you know demons, They're just uh, all part of the uh, end time scenario kind of thing, you know. Stuff. They're not they're up to no good. I, I don't want them around, <laughs> you know, my yard or whatever. So, anyways, you know, it's definitely part of the um, uh, texture of our times, you know, and the the problem is I don't get I can, you can't get um, a straight answer about this whole question. It's like nothing logical because the fraudsters are people just want to make money, or um, you just your mind uh, you know goes around and around spinning. It just doesn't uh, get a logical conclusion out of it. You know, it's just not a yeah. It's just like the James assassination with some people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, people can, like, to me, it's funny, there's a, uh, about 15 years ago, I used to, for a couple of years, I, I had trouble sleeping. I'd, I'd stay up and listen to uh, a show about the paranormal called Coast to Coast AM. You know, I realized eventually, it's all, it's another business. The paranormal is another business. And people, you know, want to get, you know, uh, filled with that kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, stimulating, and sometimes it's just like, you know, the same old, uh, 
domino, you know. It's, mm-hmm. um, so, anyway, so with that, uh, talking that on Christmas a little bit, I mean, that kind of gives you what what his um, specialty was. And because, uh, I mean, there's information he did, at least on the Beckham's HSACA interview, he does mention that Christmas worked on Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Which was, you know, a pretty famous Air Force uh, whitewash program, actually, just to explain the way the UFOs. It says it's a swamp gas or mm-hmm. balloons or, you know, geese or what have you. Just, you know, so the public would have a story. And, and uh, you know, apparently the, the skinny on Blue Book is like those were the um, the low threat cases, the easy ones. You know, there was a whole secret um, dossier, like called. Uh, it tried to grudge I dealt with the, all the scary stuff, you know. The X-Files. <laughs> yes, X-Files stuff, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, uh, I mean, when when Garrison uh, stumbled onto Christmas, he, he just, he had him, uh, uh, well, he paid, his words were, he's an operative at a supervisory level, a deep cover level, a long-range clandestine intelligence mission. I mean, this is this is uh, that's Fred Christman right there, and he's uh, one of the first people that Clay Shaw contacted once Clay Shaw got arrested. I mean, what's going on there? And then, uh, you know, Christman was so he had such a high security clearance. He had like a phone under his dashboard, yeah. and he could he could contact Looking Glasses. Looking Glasses like. This plane from the SIC command, which has all the nuclear codes that they put up in the air at all times in case of a nuclear war. And, I mean, you know. So, yeah, this guy's uh, a big deal. I mean, people didn't have phones in their cars in the 50s and 60s. They just didn't, you know. Oh, there you go. But he yeah, did. They could talk to, a, that, talk to an airplane like that. And, uh, I mean, and Beckham was like his... Um, Young protege is his trusty sidekick. You know, they did together of Batman and Robin or whatever. And they, they're, they're really both part of the, the Guy Bannister apparatus, mm-hmm. that little cell down New Orleans, all these undercover creeps walking around town doing whatever they want, you know, they're up to. So, I mean, there's yeah. uh Because what well, well, Guy Bannister you know, was working for the FBI, you know, he was investigating these so-called UFO cases out in the Midwest. His, his was the first X-File, believe it or not. I have that in my, I mentioned that in my book. Yeah, it was some little disc that was found in Idaho right after, uh, um, well, I wouldn't want to find out. I mean, it's, but it was right after uh, Roswell. They found like a 30-inch uh, saucer or something. It was really weird. It, yeah. It was, the report was filed by this guy, uh, I think he was operating out of Bozeman, Montana at the time, and uh, it turned out to be Guy Bannister. Yeah, it was, and it was uh, preceded by an X flash, whatever. It was first X file, which is interesting. He was the first Fox Mulder. Yeah, and um, and, and also look, the, when you're talking about Bannister and people like Crispin, their politics was, of course, far right. You know, extreme right wingers we're talking about here. Um, you know, ties to the John Birch Society that also gave them a, a, a more special kindred relationship as well. These have these guys have a lot of the same ideals 
and, and and things of this nature too, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's weird too, I mean, to get um kinda of gnarly here. I mean Clay Char was like a sexual deviant, you know. He was a uh you know, into like uh sadomasochism yeah. with um young homosexuals and Christmas was the same way. It was, it was they shared that, you know, yeah. For so was Ferry, so you know, so was General Walker, so was yeah, all Ferry these too. Yeah, and what's weird is like uh, Ferry, Ferry and Christman were both but bishops in this um, apostolic old Catholic Church of North America. This this is a, you know kind of offshoot of the um, Russian Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. and there was um, you know self-appointed bishops with phony credentials, mm-hmm. and then. Their young young Thomas Beckham was a, ordained as a priest in this church, so it was weird. They um, well, Beckham was instrumental in getting a lot of these guys these false credentials. I mean, he was kind of a a small time hood, a forger, a con man on, in his own right, and he had skills when it comes to uh, forging documents and and credentials and things of this nature. Yeah, well, he was. Uh, you know, he admitted to Joan Nellen in his in her book um, *Farewell Justice*. He had been uh, uh, sent to uh, the CIA's uh, training facility, Camp Peary, uh, through through the help of Fred Christman. You know, that's like a month-long indoctrination program, and in, uh, how to be a a spy and a creep and you know, a general low life. You know, yeah. So, um, you know, he also mentioned. Uh, Hanging out with Lee Harvey Oswald, they did go to banisters together, and and uh, I mean this is in his autobiography, which yeah. you had sent me. But they uh, they hung out at that there was a church there on, on Rampart Street in New Orleans, which uh, the anti Castro operatives were used to cover, and they they hang out there and hang out uh, with Clay Shaw at Oris Pena's Habana Bar, which is down by the customs area down the waterfront. Yeah, so I mean this. You know, there's a lot of stories that uh, were, um, you know, covered up during the Garrison trial, you know, because Clay Shaw walked, you know. Yeah, and and I should say, too, Richard, that, uh, you know, when Lee Harvey Oswald's handed out his leaflets, which which, um, Thomas Beckham mentions in his HSCA testimony that he was there when Oswald was handing his leaflets out and then went to get a Coke with him afterwards, but... You know, we we do have pictures from that day, and and I'll be damned if it doesn't look like a guy with a pompadour haircut and a suit, you know, standing behind <laughs> Lee Oswald in front of the trademark, kind of hiding his face. Um, and that could be Beckham. It, you know, he's he's putting himself there, and we have photographs from the day, and, and it really looks like him. If 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 you know, and I'll put I'll put all these photos up on on the website so you can go see them. Uh, for the folks out there listening, and you can make up your own mind, but to me, it's 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 a possibility. You know, if if Beckham's to be believed, and he says he was there, and we have photos, and there's a guy that looks an awful lot like him there, Richard. Well, yeah, I mean, there is in uh, Joe Mellon's book, there is a um, distinct photo that shows him. I think he's dressed in black, uh, which is, you know, he admits that it was him. So, uh, I'll, you know, I'll take his word for it. That day, I think it was August 16th, in front of the International Trademark, you know, was handing out leaflets to a bunch of um, other people. 
I think uh, Groton is actually has found a uh, um, uh, picture of Clay Shaw in the background in some white suit mm-hmm. where he's entering like a side entrance. I mean, so that's very nefarious uh, place. And that, that Oswald would, um, oh, there were a lot of uh, undercover optics in that area at the time that he was handing out the leaflets. It was kind of like a PR stunt. But there was a lot of intelligence people looking on as he, you know, did that. So I think the the idea was to um set him up as a uh you know, a, a Castro loving goofball, you know, and uh you know, that would help uh, lay a table for um painting him up as a patsy, uh, you know, when when the time came for, for Dallas in November. Um so I don't know, it was uh you know, I, the one quote from there is uh, uh, HSEA interview Oswald. Um, it, uh, well, anyways, he's 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 giving the affirmation that Oswald did work for the FBI, and, and from the way he expressed it, is that he worked directly for J. Edgar Hoover. Because uh, here's a quote here: He said he didn't worry about those local FBI; the chief would take care of them. And he had he had his ends, and that this was no worry, and the chief would take care of him. But he was referring to the head of the FBI. So I mean, this. Uh, we well, could have been referring to you know, Bannister too. I mean, if, if Bannister was running the show down there, he's former FBI. You know what I mean? And it, it's possible. I mean, I you know I mean it's possible. Yeah, yeah. No, you have a point there. I mean, but um, I mean, just in just in, in my mind, you know, I think you know Bannister was was running that part of you know he was running the show in New Orleans, basically. I mean, he had CIA contacts. He's former FBI. You know, he's part of all these anti-caster groups and these extreme right wingers, and he's he's running point on a lot of this stuff that's 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 really affecting Oswald. And, uh, you know, kind of setting him up here. And, uh, you know, you have all these guys working for him. You know, Bannister is the man, and, and everybody's working for him. So, I, you know, it could be, he, he could be possibly, you know, referring to uh, to Bannister. You know, I mean, Hoover to me is is, is, yeah, is a leap. I, but. I see your point. Um, you know, I, I guess it came out recently that... Um, Beckham was in Dallas, and this is something I um, suspected when I wrote my book. Uh, I thought he was uh, actually the guy who um, was in front of the shoe store that snuck into the theater. I thought that was his role. And I think um, I think Joe Mellon is really working on that aspect because he still uh, has some more information to get out of Beckham. But I mean, there's, there's a big puzzle there, a big piece of the puzzle that he could have been... Uh, I think Oswald got a ride from his drumming house to the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't, obviously I don't think he'd kill Tippett, but he was in no. the theater somewhere around uh, seven or eight minutes after uh, one. And uh, someone gave him a ride. Or he might have been the, like the guy that planted the jacket uh, at the Tippett murder scene. You know, right behind the uh, Texaco station there. 
Oh, he could have been the imposter in, in the, the two story. He could have been uh, the guy who rested out back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a uh, pet shop owner, Bernard Hare, had seen, you know, some fellow that looked like Oswald me taking out the back. So did Butch Burroughs. Uh, yeah. Oh, Butch Burroughs. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, he said that uh, too. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some major question mark that Beckham's going to fill. He's going to, uh, I mean, he's been uh, a rabbi, say, for the last 20 years or whatever. I think he's using religion as a, as a cover, you know, just to uh, protect himself from whatever, repercussions, protect his, you know, to save his own soul or, yeah. or well, just to look like a good guy. And, well, you, um, yeah, you read his book. I mean, stuff. you know, it's. <laughs> I like how in the back of his book he's got all these testimonials from, you know, all these other random, uh, you know, religious guys and, and more documents or, you know, uh, di- diplomas or, or what have you of, of everything that he's accomplished in his, you know, religious endeavors, supposedly. Um, but, you know. <laughs> You know, it's hard to believe that he he found a. Uh, I mean, it's possible he could have he could have uh, you know turned his life around, but you know back then he was, you know he was just a uh, you know a thug, a, a con man, a you know a shyster. And Absolutely. It's hard to believe that he's changed. Is what I'm saying. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that that kind of a character who stays with you. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, indicative of, of how deeply Beckham is, even though he's just like a, you know, a gopher, a little guy, but how integral to the plot he is because you see that during Garrison's investigation, it was Fred Christman who protected Thomas Beckham. Mm-hmm. He, was, they, he was on the run. He went to Washington State, and then later it was Nebraska. Yep. And, uh, you know, Fred Christman is his protector the whole time, kind of telling him how to uh, lay low, or who should who should stay with, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, he has a uh, interesting quote uh, in his HSC interview, you know, about uh, uh, it kind of summarizes uh, Christman's role in the whole thing. Is uh, the whole picture was Fred? He was. Fred had the ins and outs and the answers, and he knew everybody connected to the thing. Everybody. Fred knew about how things had taken place, things that happened. Fred knew everything that took place. I mean, so, I don't know. I, th- I think uh, Christman was one of the um, key, key operatives of the whole JFK plot. You know, he might uh, theorize, for example, you know, Howard Hunt, the famous uh, Watergate spy, you know, he was a uh, deeply, deeply tied interesting. But I look at Christman as like almost like the number one agent on the ground to run the whole, you know, JFK show. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's strange how uh, the, the House Select Committee just totally backed off on this guy. Um, uh, well, I think it's it's important too, Richard, that we we should we should tell everybody what exactly Beckham said that he did, and on behalf of 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 who he did it for. You know what I'm talking about when they sent him to Dallas before the assassination. 
Oh, yeah. See, is that, uh, you know, is another major piece of information we got from uh, Joe Mello's book. You know, he was, um, <clears throat> you know, around two weeks before the assassination, he had, he, had, he had gone to Dallas to deliver a package with maps and uh, 8 by 10 photos and diagrams of buildings. And he had acquired this in uh, G. Ray Gill's office in New Orleans with um, in the company of David Ferry and Clay Shaw in this um, New Orleans uh, musician mobile license called Late Martins. So he was given $200 by G. Ray Gill, this attorney, to fly to Dallas and deliver this package to the soldier of fortune named Lawrence Howard. Mm-hmm. Now Howard, Howard was a guy who had been training at No Name Key down in Everglades as part of the CIA JM Wave hit team against Castro. Yeah. And and the uh, you know the, the, one of the major theories of the JFK assassination is that this particular hit team got turned and they went after Kennedy. And they spread themselves around uh, Dealey Plaza. I mean, there's another fellow, Roy Hargrave, who was part of this team, yeah. who made a deathbed confession that he was posing as a Secret Service agent. And this is another uh, uh, Johnny Roselli, the famous mobster. He was involved with these these uh, soldiers of fortune that had no name key, and also Jerry Jerry Patrick Hemming. So there's yeah. a whole bunch of uh, Mando types. Felipe Santiago were... and yes, yes. And then um, I mean, so Beckham is giving the uh, you know the uh, advanced intelligence about the layout of Dealey Plaza to Lawrence Howard, and yeah. um, he ends up staying in town, or no, rather, if he did return, but he returned. On the uh, he returned to New Orleans, then he came back to Dallas by the 22nd. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's very suspect. You know, that's uh, a lot more of his story that he just uh, he's kept inside his soul. Yeah, and, and while um, you hopefully, know, uh, you know that that's fascinating just on its own, but when you couple it with some other things, Richard, like uh, HSC and HSCA investigator L.J. Delsa. He was he was interviewed a couple years ago, and in in the interview he stated very plainly that when he went to Lawrence Howard's house in California to interview him, they left the interview. Uh, he left the interview thoroughly convinced that Lawrence Howard was one of the shooters, and this you know this guy is a seasoned homicide detective. He has gut feelings you know on things and. You know, his, his instincts are very aware and perceptive. And after speaking to this guy for an hour, he walked out of there and said, he looked at his partner and said, you know, we just met the guy who shot the president. And when you couple that with what Beckham is telling us, you know, that he delivered this information, this hit team information to Lawrence Howard in Dallas, you know, it, it, it makes it a little bit more hard to discount, you know, or just throw away as being somebody's story. You know? Oh, he was, now Howard was absolutely involved. I mean, just no question in my mind. Uh, I had him, my guess on him was that he was the driver of the uh, White Rambler with a luggage rack on top that picked up uh, Oswald. But 
this my this just my guess. You know, I just don't know. But I mean, he was a there was a he owned a Rambler. You know, that was probably used on on the assassination day, and uh, you know, he was uh, described as uh, a friend of his said he was uh, heavily armed with in nineteen uh, during the. HSC investigation, he was just barricaded inside his apartment with all kinds of uh, ammunition and stuff. Just ready to take on the wall or whatever. He looked like a real mean character. Oh, yeah, him and Lauren Hall and and all those guys. I mean, these guys were mercenaries. They could be hired to kill for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they did. That's what they lived to do. And and they would have been tied to these guys, of course, through, you know, these... these, uh, these Cuban raiders, you know, these anti-Castro groups that are prominent in New Orleans and, and in Texas and in California, you know, these guys are running guns, they're running medical supplies from the west to the east coast, you know, for use in Cuba, and you know, all along the way, they're 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 stopping, they're talking to people, they're collecting funds to do their things. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they were offered this hit to do because you know these guys are professionals. They wouldn't hesitate, and they would get their money, and they wouldn't talk, you know. So, absolutely, and there was such a uh, a wave of um, uh, they call for just Kennedy's head. This this uh, bloodthirsty um, Cubans, you know, and uh, they just would would talk talk up this violence uh, at their uh, DRE. Meetings, the Student Revolutionary Council, and uh, you know, it was a banana republic kind of uh, mentality. Yeah, I mean, they were they were blaming him for, of course, the Bay of Pigs and and letting all these Cubans die yeah. on the shores with no military support. And if that wasn't good enough, then you have, of course, the anti-communist sentiment as well. You know, to 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 yeah. feed into people's. Um, you know, hatred of Kennedy. They, they, you know, they were deeming him soft on communism. He, he wanted to be, the, you know, he's practically inviting the Russians in to take over the country. He wasn't doing anything about Cuba. Oh yeah, he was up against the enemies from all sides. So if you get a bunch of rabid dogs like these Cubans, they're just, just they're useful idiots. You know, there's people like them would be uh, just little tools and would be used by the CIA or by the big Texas politicians or. The military used by whomever. I mean, just uh, and they could uh, themselves just uh, be blame free. You know, you yeah. have those guys that do all the dirty work, and you never even know. If you do about three different uh, generations of uh, paymasters and planning men, you just never get the trace back to you know who really uh, arranged the whole thing. Exactly. I mean, that was a that was a whole plan of let them uh, you know let them get. Hung, whatever, electrocuted. Yeah. You get blamed for um, Kennedy's murder. You know. Meanwhile, you know the CIA people and the, the military people and the politicians would all be um, scot free. You know. It's uh, it was, it was such a cataclysmic shift in the nation's uh, you know, history and the way we were going. Because we, you look at you look at our 52 years since then, and it's kind of been. Uh, We've just been going downhill. I mean, morally and uh, you know, as far as uh, being in a uh, imperialist uh, power and stuff, with just uh, all kinds of mistakes in the world. It looks to me, it's just uh, it's such a, a sad loss. And you know, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's sorry that um, 
a really a fine uh, uh, bold, courageous man like like him. He's just uh, nobody has the uh, gumption, like the courage to like stand up for him and look at this guy and get you know taken out by these horrible, these dark forces and uh, came right from our own country basically. And it's just um, yeah. no, nobody will, will stand up for him. And just uh. Because everybody wants to forget it, and, uh, and I don't know. It's just a... Uh, well, they, you know, they all uh, got away with it, except for their designated Patsy, you know, which was they carefully yeah. crafted, you know, this plan, um, you know, to, one, distance themselves from the actual shooters, and two, to have somebody to very quickly take the blame and shift shift the blame away from the people who, you know, really had the motive to do this. Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know what a uh, Cuban uh, could hope to gain out of this thing. Maybe a you know, glorified uh, good job or something. But I mean, that's a... Uh, well, I think money was, a, was a, a, big, a big thing because, you know, you look at when you look at, uh, you know, a couple of these guys like Lauren Hall and Lawrence Howard, you know, they're, I think Lauren Hall bought a motel in California after the assassination. Yeah, he was. He had a little resort complex up there in California. Yeah, he was set up for life. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's quite absolutely. obvious to me. You know, these guys were taken care of. And, you know, sure, they might have yeah. had a little bit of infighting, you know, when it comes to, I think uh, one of them was running their mouth that, that you know that they were the people at, at Odio's house, and then you know they you know the other one kind of refuted that, and then the other one recanted on it. But all in all, over the years, you know they, these guys went their separate ways after this, and and you know the whole the whole Kennedy assassination really kind of diffused the the uh, the anti Castro movement, and you know. People had to kind of shift their focus on other things like integration, the civil rights, and and all this other stuff that's happening in the country. You know, nothing stops just because the president get, gets killed. You know, everything keeps going. And you know, it's just it, it just kind of you know went kind of slided away a little bit. You know, we've had our little investigations like the Garrison investigation, the HSCA since then, and we've gotten a lot of good information out of it. The, the the question I have is why nobody is paying it any attention or giving it any credence. I mean, we have people admitting to doing things under the benefit of immunity, and people just discount it as as oh that he's a con man, he's lying, you know, whatever, whatever. He's looking for fame, whatever, whatever. But you know, Beckham's Beckham's been telling us the same story for thirty years, but he didn't say what he said started saying at the HSCA while Chrisman was still alive because he was probably scared to death, you know, to, to implicate him in anything or himself, you know, for that matter. But, you know, with the help of immunity, with the help that Chrisman is dead by then, you know, he feels well enough to go ahead and, and tell his version of events. And when he's told the HSCA, he's told to Joan Mellon and he's wrote in his own book, you know, he could have came out with his own book and said, look, you know, all that stuff I told the HSCA was a bunch of crap. You know, I found God now. I want to tell the truth. But no, this man is saying to us, he's a man of God, and he's a rabbi, and this is still the truth that I'm telling you in this book. 
you know. So you got to put some credence to that. Absolutely. You know, he didn't come out right right out and say that he was a CIA agent, but there wasn't any other conclusion. You know, he didn't use those words, but he did, you know, talk about working for the company or for the agency. You know, he's just... Um, yeah, he didn't deny it either. So. <laughs> he didn't deny it, that's for sure. You know, we can... Uh, you know, there's some interesting stuff on the tip of murder that um, involves Chrisman that we can uh, look at. Because, um, uh, I mean, one thing that Beckham had, had told uh, the HSCA was that the the Abundant Life Temple had been established by Fred Chrisman, and, and they never looked into that. You know, as you know, as it works out, the um, Abundant Life Temple was where uh, Tippett's killer was last seen, right behind it. And, uh, you know, it, it. Well, they had a suspect hold up in there, didn't they? And then, because they rate, I went back and looked at the DPD radio logs, and I believe they said they, we've got a guy in the, t- in, in the church, and then a couple minutes later, they're saying, oh, never mind, it's not the right guy. Carry on. Well, the, well, there was a 134 transmission that said, send the squad over here. Hanson Crawford, check out the church basement. Right. And uh, unfortunately, there was a uh, a minute later, there was a big rush to get to the nearby Jefferson Branch Library because they had seen uh, a young page run across the lawn, and everybody and somebody hits the siren because somebody had broadcast that they saw the suspect there. You know, right. they saw this guy who was. Works at the library. He's running in to tell all the people there that um, they've been told that uh, the, the killer was on the loose, and they should lock the doors and stuff. And uh, so somebody hit the siren, and they were all the squad cars all raced over there, and they left the uh, abundant life temple. All was left there was um, Gerald Hill and William Alexander were the two guys, and they talked to two little old ladies in the back of that abundant life temple. And those two little, little old ladies assured them that nobody had gone in there. But this is a, a building that's a half a block long, has a hundred rooms, and it's probably four stories high. Yeah. And uh, and they that you know they took the because two minutes later, Gerald Hill is back at the uh, a half a block away at the Tibbet Murder Scene, making a broadcast about shells and stuff like that. So you just didn't spend any time there at the Abundant Life Temple. You didn't not give it any kind of search. And uh, well, that's why I always thought, Richard, that that possibly because I always have this question pop up. You know, well, you know, it was Oswald's gun that shot Tippett. You know, that's been proven. Blah 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 blah. So how if if there was an imposter, how how did they use Oswald's gun, and then how does it somehow end up on Oswald at the theater? And I and I always tell them, say, look, the church is the key. That whoever shot Tippett, you know, ran that church, met with Hill, who happened to be at all three crime scenes, mind you, um, and also at the Texas theater. You know, they could have went in the theater with Oswald sitting there. They could have, you know, gotten a little scuffle. A gun hits the floor. Somebody picks it up. You know, this is this is his gun. You know, and they could have just pinned it on him that way. Um, you know. Well, I think it was his gun. It had a, it had a bad firing pin. One thing that's um, 
little word there is the uh, ammunition. There was two kinds of ammunition. You had Remington's bullets and and, Win and Winchester bullets. And he had um, one kind. He had both kinds loaded in his gun. He had just all one kind uh, in his pocket. And if you do the math there, and Tippa got, got killed by both brands of bullets. But I think if you do the math there, it's roughly uh, only a seven to one chance that he, if he's randomly feeding the bullets while he's supposedly uh, replenishing his revolver as he, he's walking away from the scene, um, the odds are like seven to one against them ending up uh, aligned as they did. You know, like half of the. Uh, well, I, I can't find it at the moment in my book, but I mean, I laid it out pretty clearly. That uh, it's um, kind of dodgy. I think I think that they um, actually they they fired these things after the fact, like on November 23rd and November 24th. Yeah. To get these new shells, because the shells they could not find the officer's markings, and they right. couldn't find Officer Poe's uh, little markings, and everybody has a little diamond point pen. Right. When they um. You know, look at the property and then the past, so you have the um, chain of possession or whatever, you know, for legal reasons. Yeah. An officer gives it to secret service agents or whatever. They, you know, they have to mark their initials and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, Poe's initials were never there, never found. Hmm. So he's the guy that supposedly found the shells. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit dodgy on that whole scene. Yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty easy for police to set them up. Uh, well, interesting too, Richard. Uh, a guy um, I'm friendly with and have had on the show before, a guy named David Josephs. He's done a lot of research on on these guns and bullets, and from analyzing the bullets that were supposedly found in Oswald's pocket after he was arrested, you can you can see where they had been held for some time in a gun belt, much like police officers wear. You know. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, and of course That's Oswald. Yeah, Oswald didn't own one of those, so it it, it is very interesting because it when there you know bullets left in a gun belt for some some period of time you know without use you know you just leave them in there if you don't fire your gun you know you leave your bullets in 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 the gun belt and what it does the the leather of course you know has chemicals that react to the to the metal in the bullets and it leaves it leaves a kind of a a sheen or an image on the on the on the casing. Um, and this is what we have appearing on these Oswald bullets that were found in his pocket, you know. So I thought that was very interesting. That is very interesting. Um, you know, another little uh, fun fact on that murder is that um, the uh, the cabbie who was who was parked right around the corner of Tenth and Patton. I mean, the cabbie used to park there regularly for his lunch break, and he said that he used to see Tip there every day. And there's a, a next the, the woman who rented the house on the corner, uh, Virginia Davis, she lived there with her sister. He, she thought Tibbet lived right next door, <laughs> right where he was killed. So, I mean, what's going on? This is not his patrol district. It was William Mensel's patrol district, and he's five miles away from his own patrol district. So, um, Yeah, I think he had a side yeah, piece living over there. Cause wouldn't, wouldn't, Why is Tippett at this place? Wouldn't one of Jack Ruby's dancers living there? 
Oh, I mean, that was... Uh, uh, Kay Coleman? I think it was Kathy Kay. Kathy um, Was, um... Yeah, her boyfriend was uh, Harry Olson, I think, and yep. he had a bum knee, and he was, um, I think it was a couple blocks over, over on East Ave, as I recall. Yeah. And uh, but they were nearby. I mean, Ruby's place was just uh, three or four blocks up, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just um, it's a weird neighborhood. Yeah. So, um, you know, you get all kinds of scenarios where some Oswald imposter could have, Oswald Double could have stopped by Ruby's and, you know, walked up. You also get the story that came out with um, William, uh, um, I'm sorry, Joseph McBride's uh, book, where um, a cop car was was seen uh, in the alley. Right. You know, it, 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 you know, so it might have been a cop that actually shot Tippett. I mean, I just, I, I don't have a handle on the uh, what I used to think might have happened. I just, I really, I, I don't. Uh, have a good grasp anymore because all all the fundamentals have been smashed to pieces. I know all it's so confusing, you know. It's, and uh, it's one of those parts on it. I think just, I think we're still still looking for the truth on uh, when it comes to the tippet killing. Well, absolutely. But the thing is, if you get a, a church that's set up by Fred Christman one block away from where Tipper was killed and where the, where the killer was last seen. I mean, you're talking Fred Christman's uh, handwriting is all over this crime, in, in my opinion. You know, and I think uh, the garrison, I mean, he received an anonymous, anonymous letter in January of 1968, and they asked him, is it not strange that Christman knew Tippett? I mean, uh, eventually he determined that the, uh, the guy who wrote the letter was uh, Bob Lavender, who was a uh, treasury agent who worked? Well, Beckham said he worked for the CIA, yeah. you know, as a uh, printer. But um, he also worked for, I believe, for the ATF at the time. It was, it was the um, Alcohol and Tobacco Tax (ANTT) uh, organization. Mm-hmm. But it's rather strange that Christman would know Tippett, that he would set up a temple. Right, where you know, block away from where Temple was killed. So I mean, this is uh. I tell you, <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you some other weird things. Um, two two that come to mind are one, when you mention the name Harold Dahl, sounds a hell of a lot to me like Harold Doyle, <laughs> one of the tramps. But I'm sure that's oh, just. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I hear. Uh, isn't that interesting? You know, it's what's one thing that's funny about those tramps is that they all have, um, they all look like doubles. I mean, one of them was supposed to look like E.R. and Hunt, and he does. But there's another guy, I said, what's his name? A- Abrams or something. Gus Abrams. Yep. I think his name is. He looks also like E.R. and Hunt. Or Sturgis. It was funny that, yeah, another guy that supposedly looked like Sturgis, and then looked like Charles Harrison. Yeah. And uh, just, I, I can't make them out. I mean, Another guy that was uh, supposedly Charles Rogers, who was like a psycho killer, uh, you know, topped up his parents or something like that. Yeah. Just, uh, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't look too hard into the tramps anymore. Wow, those are, those are a couple some characters right there. Yeah, but I tell you, the other uh, oddity that jumps out to me too, Richard, is, is when I look at the picture. Yeah, I guess it was drawn. Um, from Antonio Vesiana's description of 
uh, Bishop. Okay. Yeah, Maurice Bishop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, when you look at that picture, and you you understand that Fred Christman, people did sometimes call him Bishop. Okay. Now, if you that picture to me looks a hell when you put it side by side, it looks a lot more like Fred Christman than it does David Atlee Phillips to me. Okay. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was one additional piece of evidence, so I, I'm trying to recall. Someone uh, found a name in the file for Maurice Bishop that was tied in with uh, <clears throat> David Atlee Phillips. I believe it was the name Turple, Frank Turple, is coming in. As far as finding it down in some Miami uh, CAA station that associated the alias uh, Maurice Bishop with Phillips. So I could be mistaken here, but that's my recollection. So there is a similarity with Fred Christman, I agree. But, you know, there's also there's a very good similarity with David Adley Phillips. Yeah, and so, Jack, Jack Ruby had the name Bishop in his uh, his little phone book as well with a, with a phone number. Well, nothing he's tied in to would surprise me, you know. He's just in <laughs> yeah. The mob and CIA and, and who knows what, you know, he was the man about town. You know, he's in with half the DPD and I think it was, had to have been in, in with the sheriff's office as well. And, uh, yeah, well, I've been looking they, in, uh, I've been looking into his ties lately and I came across an interesting character that worked for General Walker named, uh, William Duff. He was actually arrested, uh, a couple of days after the attempted shooting of General Walker, uh, he used to actually live in Walker's house for about five months prior to the to okay. the Walker shooting. And he yeah, states, yeah, yeah he, he stated he saw Ruby in the company of two other men uh, visit General Walker's house on the basis of approximately once a month um, for, for, you know, five months. They met behind closed doors. He doesn't know what they talked about. And then when you look at what Ruby was telling uh, Earl Warren, when he when he came to Dallas to interview him, he says, you know, look, there's an organization, and, and that word keeps popping up, you know, the organization, as as uh, Beckham calls it. He's Jack Ruby says, look, sir, you know, there's an organization here in Dallas, and uh, you know, the John Birch Society mentions Gerald Walker, and he's like, you know, he's practically begging Earl Warren to get him the hell out of Dallas and take him to Washington. He says, you take me to Washington, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. But he said, Sheriff Decker told me to be a man, so I'm going to say it. You know, there's an organization here, sir. You know, and he was basically telling Warren, look, I'm scared to death because, you know, these guys and God knows what, you know, he got mixed up in with him. And, you know, if he was talking to him and, and, you know, you can kind of start making the ties from there. You know what I'm saying, Richard? Yeah, it's... uh it's unbelievable. I mean, the um, uh, the kaleidoscope of uh, possibilities that arise from almost every every little nuance of every little ambiguity is just um, you know mind-boggling. You just you, it, it's, I mean, where do you go? I mean, unfortunately, all the half the truth got bumped off. You know, we were so trying to fit in the puzzles. I mean. Uh, <clears throat> Whatever Dorothy Kilgallens came up with when she interviewed Ruby in his um, jail cell, I mean, and she had told the press that people are going to be writing about this for the next 50 years. Yeah. You know, that was 
Yeah, and they are. You know, it's it's just so. Uh, it's almost like Ruby said. It's the greatest conspiracy in the history of the world. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I mean, you just you just wouldn't believe it if you knew the truth. And um, I think he's right. You know, I I um I empathize at times with Jack Ruby, even though he's one of history's fine bags. You know, and he's just a just a, a colorful lost cuff character in a way as well. And, yeah. Well, I've been reading this book. I don't know. I've been reading this book called General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy, and it, it's a big book, Richard. It's like you know pushing seven hundred some pages. Um. And there's a lot of information in it, and there is a letter from General Walker to uh, the Reverend Billy James Hargis, who was leader of this Christian crusade back then, you know, very, very right. Absolutely, right yeah. Yeah. And it was in 1966, and it was right after Jack Ruby had went into the hospital uh, before his second trial there, and he was telling Hargis this. He said, uh, you know, uh, the only way Jack Ruby is going to leave that hospital is in a box. <laughs> okay, he said. He said. He said. He represents like the last obstacle from shifting the blame back onto the right wing, and and you know this wow. must be followed through with. And wow. and then he goes on to say uh, to mention RFK and that RFK must be dealt with as insurance and assurance that the blame won't be shifted back to the right wing ever. So. You know, it's 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 crazy stuff, man. What a crazy time. I mean, uh, <clears throat> RFK and then Martin Luther King as well in 68. I mean, those were uh, heavy-duty uh, conspiracies, you know. It's just um, that, that time period of, uh, uh, you know, American history where they used the domestic assassination as a tool and uh, how profoundly uh, this... Uh, just lose, uh, eliminating a few key people just uh, just totally derailed, you know, just uh, the country would have been a, a whole lot different with them around, so. Oh, most definitely. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, I don't know whether it can happen again or what, but, um, uh, you know, I hope they have it doesn't. That's all. Uh, I don't know. There's some crazy just, stuff going on in Oregon, Oregon, you know. Well, yeah, I saw that video. You talk about the uh, the occupation of that um, of that wildlife reserve and stuff, and that guys get killed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw the video. Of that I, I just don't know what to make of it. I just uh, I don't get a clear. Uh, I can't see exactly whether he was reaching for a gun or not, and I don't know you know who's whose version of the story to believe. You know, and this is this is happening constantly. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's been a lot. Of, there's been a lot of you know, a lot of cops shooting first and asking questions later here in the in the past couple of years, more than I think ever before in the history of the United oh, States. Oh, absolutely! It is a, a, it's it's skyrocketed, and uh, I don't know what it's it's part of the uh, the fever of our times because. Yeah. Um, there's very the, the the natives are very restless. I mean, they they have a cops have a good reason to have itchy trigger fingers, you know, because I mean there's a lot of danger out there. It used to not be, 
Yeah. In in this country in the sixties, say, you know, a little kid like me, I, I could walk around and, when I was five years old, I could walk down the street in Boston to the local church or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, you just couldn't do that because it's a very dangerous uh culture, you know. Yeah. And the whole drug culture is um uh you know, the eroded people's morals and it's just all you might have we're fed with um Guns and violence on television, it's just, uh, you know, really, really, I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's just uh, not the country that I grew up in, and um, and possibly we can make a turn for the better, but I really think we're, we're going to have a cataclysmic uh, conclusion. You know, yeah. Something as wicked is going to happen, but it's going to take that for us to wake up, but it's going to be devastating when it comes. I mean, you know, it's just going to be a lot of calamity. So, yep. um, well, hey, Richard. Uh, you know, but, but hopefully, you know, I just had, uh, hopefully we have a chance. I hope that the uh, truth about, the, especially John Kennedy, will come out there that it doesn't fade into becoming another Lincoln kind of thing, because I tell you, I was... I always thought I was well educated because I grew up in Boston. You get pretty good education in that area. And um, it took me until I was like 30 years old to realize that um, uh, Lincoln was was assassinated by a conspiracy. I saw a picture in a Time Life book one winter's day um, of like four people hanging for conspiracy to murder President Lincoln. I didn't know this. I heard the whole story was... uh, you know, John Wilkes Booth, and um, I'm afraid that the same kind of thing is going to happen with John Kennedy. So I'm going to get buried. It was such a, it was a, it's a really, in my opinion, it was a massive conspiracy with all, a lot of high up people in government, you know, and they yeah. got away with it. Yeah, but a lot they, of these they, teachers, you know, they, they, take, they take the easy way out, the lazy way out, and they teach us, you know, Okay, here's what the history books say, and that's that's all you get. You know, now I will say, you know, there's there is some a new breed of good teachers, and and one of which is is a gentleman by the name of Garland Brown in Tennessee, who actually teaches his children, you know, that you know he has them do projects on the assassination, and he has them do like mock trials, and he has them really really look at things, and he's doing really great things when it comes to educating our kids, and I think that's a a direction that more uh, teachers need to go in. Yeah, absolutely. You want to, uh, you know, it's a lot easier just to, um, I don't know, live in truth rather than uh, live in a life of lies, you know, because you always have to wonder what, who you said to what. Or whatever, you know? <laughs> no. but honestly, it's the best policy. You know, it's just so much easier. You know, yeah. sometimes you don't know, but you know, sometimes you forget. But, I mean, it's just, you know, truth is much better. It's just uh it's got a certain ring to it and um I don't know, I just uh the thing is I, I feel real privileged in a way 'cause I have um uh it's really um it's just a group of citizens and of their own initiative who have really kept the uh, flame alive about JFK and uh you know, I know that I when I get laid to rest or whatever. You know, how I have a, uh, you know, a satisfaction, a happiness there that I did something, 
you know, to help preserve that part of our history, of the nation's history, really. Same as like any soldier, whatever, or any, you know, good cop or anyone who does their job. This is, I feel like it's part of my social job or whatever. You know? Yeah, well, while you're still on this side of the grass, Richard, I want to personally thank you for everything you've done because you've brought us a ton of information. And uh, I, for one, appreciate you and, and everything you've done. And look, if, if folks want to know more, if they want to get your book, visit your website. Let them know how they can do it because I think you have written a great book and, and you know your website presents your articles and uh, so please tell people how they can find your book and your website. Well, book is book name of the book is Matrix for Assassination. It was it was my conclusions in 2009. No, I've grown since then, but still good. I still agree. I haven't looked at it for a couple of years, but I still agree with about 85 percent of it and. Um, it's uh, available through my publisher is Trafford Publishing. So if you Google my name or something and uh, uh, Matrix of Fascination or Trafford Publishing, uh, you could order the book. It's like thirty-five dollars, thirty-four ninety-five, I think. It's about five hundred pages and uh, it's large sizes, kind of the size of a Life magazine, and. Um, it's really uh, still pretty nice. I think I have around 300 pictures in there, and uh, the, I, I do not include an index, however, because I want to keep the cost down. And the index would have had to shoot it up to forty dollars, so I just didn't want to do that. Right. And the other thing is my uh, website, which has my articles, is um, www.jfkinsidejob.com, and so that has my. Uh, <clears throat> My most recent essay uh, that I put together this past year is really my uh, uh, my up to the date, state of the art conclusions. You know, as far as I've basically since the book, I basically specialized in the uh, book depository and uh, you know trying to figure out what happened inside there. And uh, you know, so I've made a I made a couple early essays that I probably should add to that website, but this is my Seventy-five page essay that we've, uh, you know, just says my case for what I think happened as far as my thinking at the moment. So yeah, because I think you incorporated it, you know, like the the elevator escape theory and and a little bit of the Potemkin village aspect into it, you know, the the, the inside job one as well, and, and made it a more complete, uh, up to date work. And uh, also, folks, I. I I got my copy of, of Richard's book on Amazon.com, so you can probably find it there as well. Um, and like I say, JFK Inside Job, you got the PDFs right there. You can download them. You can print them out and read them. It's it's a great resource. Um, so Richard, did, did we get to everything on uh, Beckham and Chrism that, that you wanted to touch on today? Um, I think so. I think there's a you know it's just um it's kind of just sampling the uh, pot as far as those guys, but that's pretty much a, a pretty comprehensive overview. I think there'll be more in the future, especially from uh, Joan Mellon about uh, Beckham. I'm sure she's uh, hot on the trail or something. And um, uh, But I think that, that exhausts, it basically exhausts my um, knowledge of those guys, you know, except I could read a lot from a book, but it's right in the book. And especially uh, rehashing what we've already discussed. So um, I think that pretty well covers it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would also point, you know, people, if 
if you'd like to read more um, and go like really, really in depth on, on, on people like Chris, uh, Ken Thomas has a great, great book called JFK and UFO, the military industrial conspiracy and cover up from Maury Island to Dallas. Uh, David Hetcher Childress has a book called NASA Nazis and JFK. Uh, includes the Torbit document and the JFK assassination. It's it's all good reading um, if you'd like to know more about the subject because believe me, there's not a lot on it that hasn't been covered already. It's very hard to turn up information on on, on Christman uh, that we don't know already. That's not classified to the hilt. And uh, like like Richard said, we're still we're still chipping away at the uh, at the Beckham tree, and hopefully uh, Joe Mellon can get us more from there. Um, so Richard, I thank you very much for joining me today. I, I hope people like this episode. I know they loved the, uh, the inside job show. Um, I think we're up to 1500 and some downloads of that now. So, and, and a lot of good feedback and hopefully, uh, we're going to get a lot more good feedback from this one. Well, thanks Rob. It's been a um, real pleasure, you know, again, a real privilege. Um, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, uh, enjoy speaking with you and I'm just so glad that we've made this connection, you know, so uh, you know, might be another time when we come up with some other subject but, you know, I think we did it pretty well here today, so oh, Most definitely, we're going to have to do it again and I'm sure I'm sure we'll come up with something we can talk about <laughs> So Richard, you hang on the line for me, I'm going to talk us out, buddy People, head over to tlgpodcast.com, I'm going to put up some pictures, I'm going to put up links to Richard's book where you can order it and uh, see for yourself uh, some of the stuff that we were talking about here today. You can see Guy Bannister holding a UFO and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so go go check that out. This some bitches in the can beamed up this satellite down directly to your ears. It's your boy. save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. 
This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.